Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 243 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Partner in Lime, an interview with Grace and Jessica Schneider. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. So today's episode is really powerful because typically when we think about Lyme disease, we think of it as destroying relationships, family relationships, intimate relationships, and social relationships. But Grace and Jessica taught us how Lyme disease was a vehicle for them to strengthen their interpersonal relationships. Not only did it help them get through their Lyme journey, but it also helped them through other medical conditions like COVID. Grace treated chronic Lyme disease using all the traditional tools, but did not succeed. Because of their relationship and because of their partnership, they kept trying new things for Grace until they found an alternative medicine that helped Grace get her life back and she went from being bed bound to now hiking. Hey, Jessica and Grace Schneider, and welcome to the Take Bootcamp podcast. Thank you for having us. We are really blessed to have you. And, and again, I can't thank the two of you enough for taking time out of your lives and sharing your journey with the people in our community. Uh, you are going to be saving people's lives. You're going to be helping people get better. And it's only because you're being kind enough to share your experiences with our folks. In addition to so many other cool things that you're doing, which we'll talk to you about at the end of the podcast. So um, I'm going to start with you, Jess. Can you please uh, share with us what your background is, where did you grow up and what kinds of things did you do growing up in um, the community where you come from? I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, and my whole family, my extended family is still there. My dad moved around a little bit for his job. So we spent some time in Connecticut, some time in Pennsylvania. And then when my family moved back to Connecticut, it coincided with me graduating from college. And so I came to help them move and stayed, met my husband, settled here and then started our family here. So, so um, what is it that you were interested in learning when you went to college and what did that ultimately do for you on your career path? Um, honestly, not a whole lot. You know, I went to college for international business and I was one of those rare people who did find a job in the international business field. I was a relocation consultant for a few years and was very dissatisfied with corporate America. And so I felt that there was a different purpose. Um, I wanted, even when I was in my 20s, to give back in some way. So I was a mentor with the I Have a Dream Foundation in Stanford. And I spent a few years mentoring a girl um, from about ages 10 to 12. So we got to do some really, really cool things. And it planted this seed of interest to go back to school for education. So I went back to school, got my master's in elementary education, and taught for a few years. And then I had grace and realized that my husband was in the city. So he was in Manhattan working crazy hours, traveling a lot. And one of us had to be home. So I left my job to stay home with my daughter, had another daughter and realized that I think those few years in education were to prepare me to educate my own children. So they came out of school when they were in second in fourth grade. And I was a homeschool educator for over 10 years. And so I saw them from second grade straight on through high school graduation. Oh, it's really cool. And it may be politically incorrect for me to say this, but you look and sound like a teacher. No, oh, thank you. They yell at me. They say, mom, don't use your teacher voice when you're talking to people. So I always have that in my head. I'm like, I don't want us to use that teacher voice, but thank you. <laughs> so um, you grew up in the line belt, right? You were in, you were in all the states in the line belt, right? You, you, you were in Pennsylvania, you were in Connecticut, you were in Massachusetts. So uh, talk to us about what you knew about ticks and tick diseases as a child growing up in the Lyme Belt and then ultimately as an educated mom uh, raising children in the Lyme Belt. You know, I wish I knew more. I grew up when we spent time in 
Connecticut was from sixth grade through high school and our house bordered woods and we ran through those woods. I mean, splashed in the Creek, took motorcycles, like back on the trails. Like we were in the woods all the time. I never remember getting a tick though, but my parents were aware enough to make sure that every time we came in, we took our clothes off. They went in the wash. We took a shower. My mom from a really early age, just drilled rinse off after you've been in the woods. So we never really had an issue with pulling a lot of ticks off of us, even though we were really active in the outdoors. Um, even on Cape Cod, we spent two weeks every summer in the Cape, which is now, you know, endemic for Lyme. But my parents, I don't know if it was just intuitive or if someone passed it on to them, they knew not to let us go in the, the grass. We had to stay in the middle of the, the path. We never really went hiking unless it was on a paved rail trail. They just never really encouraged reckless abandon in the woods, you know, and we weren't campers. My mom was not a fan of camping. So our exposure was fairly limited, but pretty safe when I look back on it. And it wasn't because we were talked to about ticks or Lyme disease. My parents were just intuitively, I think, um, aware of, of ticks. So you, you think the, the, the sort of bumpers that they were building around you uh, were, were based on their concern about ticks or was it just intuitively designed to protect you from something they knew was, was dangerous to their children? You know, I'm going to have to ask them when I speak to them again, because I don't know the answer to that question, but it did influence me when I was raising my children. They were involved in a lot of outdoor activities. When my daughter, my other daughter, Lila, came out of school in second grade, one of the first activities I put her in was an eight hour nature immersion program. So every Tuesday she spent eight hours in the woods and I did make sure that she was wearing protection, that she came home and, you know, took off those clothes, put it right into the wash, into the dryer. Like we did all those things. Um, so I do think it impacted the way I parented my kids. And I don't know, I think we were sort of aware um, to do tick checks and to. Well, we also knew people in the community who had Lyme disease too. So that made us more aware. So Grace, well, just give us an idea because obviously your mom when she was a child had some, I guess, indirect knowledge of the risks of ticks and, and wooded areas. But what was your childhood like? Give us an idea of what your childhood was like when you were younger and growing up with, it sounds like a younger sister, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so I had your typical childhood. Um, I grew up, learned how to ride bike at four. Uh, was in school at five, started like kindergarten as a younger kid because I was on the September birthday. So I started school at four, um, super active. I loved being outside. I loved playing with the boys. I was more of a tomboy growing up than a girly girl. Um, so just really, I mean, I remember building tree houses and I was really outside the minute I got out of school every day. And then when I came out of school and started homeschooling, I was in the woods. We did horseback riding, um, swimming, and we just spent a lot of time with other people. Like I was always around other people and that always made me happy. But yeah, I had your pretty typical childhood. I loved my childhood. But growing up in Connecticut, I mean, especially horseback riding and being in the woods, were you tick aware? Were you more tick aware than your mom was when she was a child? I knew about ticks and I knew that they were to be feared but I didn't know what the long lasting effects could be. 
like I, I only found maybe two ticks ever crawling on me. I've never found any embedded in me. And that was always like, oh my goodness, get it off. Like we have to get it off and make sure that's the only one. But, you know, I, I only know of one friend when I was growing up and her leg swelled up to the size of cantaloupe. Like it was huge. So I noticed like, okay, this can do something, but I didn't know other than just swelling and affecting your joints. I didn't know any of the other effects of it. Were you doing tick checks when you were out and doing things like horseback riding and being and going out in the woods? Were you looking for ticks that were on you or biting you at that point? Yeah, we always did. Um, we would always look in the hair, like our hair's light. So we would always look through our hair and, you know, in the armpits behind the legs, like everywhere where you would think they could hide. So yes, we would always do tick checks. We would shower when we would come in and all of that bug spray. So, so Grace, you, you mentioned that you had a friend who was bit on her leg by a tick and it swelled, swelled up, right? Mm -hmm. Did you know anybody else that you were friends with your age that was bit by a tick and contracted Lyme or any other tick-borne illness? I don't remember any other ones, no. So you just really thought of Lyme disease as something that gives you joint pain and didn't realize the extent of what it can be at that point when you were young. Yep, I just thought, you know, joint pain, it affects you for two weeks and then you're good to go. So what was it like being homeschooled as a child? So it sounds like you, I think you were in fourth grade when you were taken out of school and being homeschooled. What was that like for you to go from having a school life to not being homeschooled? I absolutely loved it. Um, I finished fourth grade and then decided to come out for fifth grade and to try it for a year to see if I liked it. The first four months were awful and I almost went back. And then after that, I, I never looked back at school. Um, I loved it. I loved the opportunities we got. I loved being on the road and seeing different parts of the country and learning at the same time. Um, like I said, we were always with people. So anything that we were learning, we tried to create a group for and just learn together with our peers. And you know, our peers could range from five years younger to five years older. And it kind of, we just all worked together unless like math, other you can't really, can't really learn math together. But other than that, we would we would get together with friends and the classes we took were really cool. And when I graduated high school, I missed it a lot. Especially when I went off to college, I realized how special and unique it was that I got to have those opportunities. Grace, as you were getting older, what did you want to do? Did you want to go to college? What were your aspirations? Um, from kindergarten through sixth grade, I want to be on the Weather Channel as a meteorologist. Um, and then in sixth grade, I was taking a program at one of the local colleges and they pretty much said I would have had to go back to school for um, high school and have calculus done by high school. And I don't like math enough to have done that. So I decided to change my career path. And when I was 15, picked up a camera and started fooling around with that. And then I had an awesome teacher who turned it from a hobby into this is what I want to do with my life. And so when I graduated, I had already started my business and was going to go to community college to get my associate's degree in photography. So I'm just curious about homeschooling. So when you said you had an awesome teacher, what did that look like homeschooling? Was, what, did, did your mom partially teach you and other, other parents as well? So what was that like? So my mom would teach me. And then, so we, like, we always did math and math. That's about it. So that was the one thing that she would teach me. Well, she taught me more, but that was like the one solo thing she would teach me. Um, and then we pretty much outsourced other classes. So we would go to, um, we went to this program in Stanford called Soundwaters and they taught us science for 
a year. Um, the photographer that we reached out to, he was willing, he's a professional photographer and he was willing to teach a class of kids, um, photo one and photo two. And what other class, I mean, the classes are endless that we've taken. Um, we were part of a co-op for homeschoolers. So it's kind, kind of like a little school for homeschoolers. Um, and we did history there. We did art there, um, other science classes. And sometimes parents were uh, run those or sometimes they brought in other professionals in the area to teach us. And we would just learn together. You mentioned that you took up photography right before you were about to go to community college. So were you doing more things in the woods and more things in nature with photography as your, your hobby developed with photography? Yes. Um, at that time, I was still horseback riding. Um, I was very active in like the winter time, which I know isn't the most popular time for ticks, but I was snowboarding. Um, I don't know, taking the dog to the parks, going on hikes. Um, I was still outside a lot. And it's, and then with the, the photos, you know, I went to the beach all the time. I would go on nature walks and yeah, I was definitely outside a lot. And never experienced a tick biting you, only crawling on you. No, I never experienced a tick bite, never saw a rash, um, never, never saw anything embedded. And the only time I saw them crawling on me when I was, I was like younger in elementary school, even in high school, I never, I never saw anything. So what made you go to, or want to go to community college? Were you uncertain about what you wanted to do? So you wanted to get a broad experience in college to determine what you wanted to do in life or were you determined to go and be a photographer at this point no I knew exactly what I wanted to do um being a homeschooler I didn't want an art school basing me just on a test um I wanted them to base me on a portfolio so I decided to not do the SATs and to go the community college route um do the acuplacer test get in do it for two years just so I had a degree under my belt um, and then my third year, I was going to go out to a Christian program in Colorado and go live life out there for a year after that, and then start my business the fourth year of what would have been my typical fourth year of college, which would have been this year. So what, what's interesting is I think that, well, in addition to that, I mean, I went to a community college for the first two years as well, and I saved a ton of money by doing that. And of course, when you graduate, you get a diploma from your four-year school and you saved money in the first two years. I think that was a smart move financially and also to uh, pursue your plan. So you mentioned that you wanted to go to a Christian program after your first two years of community college. So talk to us about your faith and how you were brought up with, with your faith and what your religion is and how that played a role in you growing up and developing. Sure. Uh, I was raised Catholic. And so since I was born until I was 15, we were raised in the Catholic church and had all the sacraments. And then when I was 15, we were invited to go to a church with friends that we were visiting in Alabama. And it was just a non-denominational church. We went, I was super confused the first time. The second time we went, I absolutely loved it. And I wanted something like that up in Connecticut and Connecticut is not the Bible belt. So I didn't even know if that existed up here. <laughs> Um, but then found a local church and got plugged in with the, um, the youth group, like the high school ministry there, um, and just like fully jumped into what it's like to live a Christian life. And, you know, I was raised Christian, so I knew who, you know, God and Jesus were, but, um, I never had that relationship. So in high school, I was able to learn what that was and what it looks like and like, let that lead my life. So here we are, you're 18 years old, you're about to enter community college, and I'm really getting anxious to ask you, when did a tick bite and tick-borne illness start to interfere with your life? 
So it was when I was 17. It was my last semester of high school. Um, I was snowboarding and I went off like this little side jump. I landed, I fell down and then I kept going. Like it was nothing. Um, and then as the day got on, I started having concussion symptoms, which I knew what they were like because I had a concussion when I was younger. And so like the light started bothering me, um, sound started bothering me. Then it got to the point where I couldn't drive at night. Um, I couldn't read, I couldn't do computer work, which as a photographer is very hard. <laughs> um, and it was my last year of high school. So I was lucky enough to be mostly done at that point since I could set my own schedule. I was, it was um, February of 2018. So I was almost done, but my mom, helped me out with a lot of my work remaining. And then we just started chasing after what we thought was a concussion and why my symptoms were so bad when I didn't even hit my head. So thinking about that, right? I mean, you fell, you didn't hit your head, but yet you were experiencing concussion symptoms. So when you went to your doctors, did they ever, were they ever confused by that? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the last doctors was a neurologist, uh, looked at me and she said, um, that the like trauma, like the, the fall should not have been causing the symptoms this bad. Um, she never said it was in my head, but I could tell that she thought I was leaving out a piece of information, but I wasn't. Um, so yes, doctors were confused um, and all my tests came back normal. So I do want to ask about your childhood concussion and I'm Rich is going to jump in in a second. And I'm, I'm sorry for dominating here, Rich. But we, we've seen a pattern here, Grace, right? And, and, and a lot of people who come onto this podcast, I think a larger amount than we ever expected, have told us that they've experienced multiple concussions throughout their life, including before they got sick with Lyme disease. So we've been trying to figure out why that is. So do you think that you possibly had Lyme and it was causing some sort of balance or neurological issues, which led to the fall? Or, you know, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that, because it is something that we've identified as a pattern that we didn't expect to see as a pattern. Um, looking back at what I know now, it makes me question if I've had Lyme as a kid or even genetically. Um, and the, con I mean, the concussion that my first one was from playing basketball. And so I didn't really think anything of it. You know, I was fine after three days. Um, but growing up with some of, you know, these food sensitivities I would have and, um, just some of my little quirks and I was super sensitive to certain things. Uh, it made me like now wonder if that all along was Lyme and that it just wasn't bad enough to make people question it. Okay, mom. So now it's time for you to give us some insight into what you think was going on. You, you, so you have this tomboy. She's a, an athletic kid. She loves the outdoors. You're doing your best to try to, you know, set some constraints so that she's going to say, stay safe and healthy. But it sounds like she's starting to have some health issues. Uh, beginning with some some uh, concussions and issues like that. So what are you thinking at the time when when you're dealing with these as a parent? You know, I never would have thought that it was anything other than what it was. You know, I thought she was just a kid who didn't like certain foods or who didn't like to wear certain clothes or who liked to have things just in a particular way. I just thought that was her personality and it, and it very well might be um, because we just don't know what we don't know. Um, so I never really was looking for anything deeper when she had the basketball related concussion. Um, there were really no long-term ill effects from that. She seemed to bounce right back, you know. Um, it wasn't really until we saw our first Lyme doctor 
that I started putting pieces together, they explained to us. And one piece that I think you probably want to ask Grace about is her work down in Texas, because they feel that two things were happening at the same time. Um, they felt that her symptoms came on almost coincidentally. It just happened to be a day that she was snowboarding, but it was about six weeks after she had spent time in Texas and where she was exposed to mold. So I know that that's another real common denominator among Lyme patients is exposure to mold. So she had two things going on. She had, you know, head trauma, and then she had exposure to mold and the onset of those symptoms apparently coincide with mold exposure and Lyme symptom onset. So they feel that it was just a perfect storm in her body of, of what happened and when it happened. Unfortunately for us and for me, I was like Grace said, chasing the wrong diagnosis. We were focusing on, okay, why can't she read? Why can't she be in a, in a concert without just cowering in pain, the lights and the sound, she couldn't take in anything. Everything was so overwhelming to her. Um, so we were looking, we went to concussion specialists, neurologists, like Grace said, we went to every type of doctor to find out why isn't it getting better, but we never thought to look at, could it be something else? And if so, what could it be? So let's unpack that, Jessica. So your, your, your daughter is suffering from all of these neurological symptoms and you're trying to get a diagnosis for these neurological symptoms. And now she goes to a doctor and the doctor is kind of gaslighting her, right? She's thinking there's a piece left out. How did you as a parent react to that? It was really frustrating for me because I would have prided myself up until this as being a mom who generally could figure things out. I, I know a lot about, you know, natural medicine and healing, and there wasn't anything that came up in my child's life that we couldn't find a doctor to address, or we couldn't fix on our own. So I had that self-imposed label of a fixer mom. And so when I couldn't fix this, the worry set in and it became very anxiety producing for me to not know what the next step was to not know who else to go to when you've been to 10 doctors and no one's giving you accurate information or even a plan to, to go after. We, we just didn't know what to do. So I just took her to a random doctor that we had no experience with. And I presented her as like a test case, <laughs> like, you know, here's Grey's Anatomy. Here's a kid who she's sick, figure it out because no one else can. And so he did, um, a basic physical. And he is a doctor in our area that tags on Lyme tests to every physical that he does. And as luck would have it, her body was reacting in such a way that this test picked up a few bands on the Lyme test. And when we got the blood work back, unfortunately the Lyme test was not positive enough. So she's not CDC positive. Um, the doctor said that she was absolutely fine. There was no follow-up needed. And then I got really, really angry. <laughs> because... okay, so so let's, let's pause there before we get, we get emotional together. And I want to look back at the journey with the 10 different doctors that you had, uh, that you had seen, right? Um, was there ever a time where you doubted whether or not your daughter was really as sick as she was portraying herself? Because we see with a lot of people, they, you know, they bring their children to doctors they're relying on the doctors. They believe that the doctors are, are trained to diagnose uh, symptoms. And when a doctor says to a parent, hey, 
you know, she may be, you know, she may be, uh, you know, emotionally ill rather than physically ill. Did any of that ever cause you to doubt your daughter's symptoms? Not for one second. I never doubted her. She is a kid who knows what she wants and knew what she wanted from five years old. She was a kid who woke up every single morning and said, okay, mom, put on the weather. I need to know how to dress today. I need to know how to prepare for what's about to come my way today. Every single day. I mean, she is driven. And when it changed from meteorology into photography, that became her guiding path. And when she wanted to incorporate mission work into that, she knew she had to do certain things. So she wasn't or isn't the type of person who tends to exaggerate or um, avoid certain things. So if she says something is the way it is, I have no reason to not believe her wholeheartedly. And so when doctors would say, I can't figure it out, I would just say, well, then clearly you're not the right doctor and we need to figure something else out because I'm not going to, I'm relentless when it comes to my kids and figuring things out for them, um, almost to my own harm, because when I couldn't figure this out, it, it actually caused me a lot of emotional stuff I had to work through, but no, okay. I never doubted her. So let's pause that for a second. I want to stay with the doctors for a little bit longer. One of the challenges that we've seen with uh, parents that we've interviewed in the past is that <clears throat> when they're going from doctor to doctor, they're often accused, the, the parent, of damaging their child in some way. And, and, and I don't want to necessarily argue the Munchausen uh, issue, but we've had a lot of, we've had a lot of parents um, accused of essentially abusing their children when they're going from doctor to doctor. Do you have a feel any of that? Do you have any of those types of accusations uh, that you had to deal with? You know, I didn't. And I, I'm fortunate because I also have had experiences where I've spoken to parents who have had that happen. And I didn't. Um, we have a group of doctors that are incredibly kind and caring. And the primary doctors that were involved with her were our naturopathic doctors. And they they knew us before this and they knew Grace very well and they knew that something was wrong and it pained them that they couldn't figure out what it was. Um, it wasn't until we left that path into the more traditional doctors when we saw the neurologist, that wasn't a great experience. Um, but that was really the only doctor that caused doubt in, not doubt in us, but, you know, put doubt over the situation. And I actually took her to a spine surgeon because I figured a lot of her pain after the concussion was kind of moving into her shoulders and upper back area. And it was, it was a significant amount of pain. So again, grasping at straws, I went to a spinal surgeon for her and he looked right at her and he said, Grace, I don't know why you're having this pain. Yes. You have a mild, mild herniation that probably happened years ago when you were ice skating, but I believe you. And so he referred us, you know, to a traditional pain management route, which we weren't willing to explore, but just the fact that he said, I don't know why you're feeling this way, but I believe you. I like, I teared up. I said, thank you for that because I appreciate you saying, I don't know this. I can't figure this out, but I just believe in what you're saying. And I believe that that pain is real. So it, it's really important. I think for doctors to validate what we're going through and admit that it might be outside of their zone of expertise and, and admit that there's no harm in saying, I don't know, but I'll help you find someone that might. So one of the things that I want to compliment you about, uh, is, 
So many of the people that we've interviewed in the past have said that because their parents didn't believe in them, their parents didn't help them to get the assistance that they needed. And that was one of the challenges. Then we've heard from other folks that even though their parents believed in them, their doctors didn't believe in them. And because their doctors didn't believe in them, that created some doubt between you know, parents and children in, in their experience. And of course, there's so many other experiences. You know, I think of Holiday Goudreau, for example, who brought her daughter to 50 different doctors before she got her Lyme disease diagnosis, and she was repeatedly accused of essentially abusing her child, right? So you, you, you really had a, a, a really powerful path where we had a wonderful mom who always believed in her child. We have a set of doctors who, although they couldn't diagnose your daughter, they were not trying to create any doubt or create, create any split between the two of you. And then you had also a wonderful experience where you had a doctor in the Lyme belt who's adding a Lyme disease test to every single patient that he sees, which is exactly what should be happening to all of us in the Lyme belt, uh, and probably all of us everywhere when we certainly are having some difficulties diagnosing uh, someone. So you really had a really you know, great path. So talk to us, talk to us about, uh, before I let Matt come back in uh, and, and get, uh, Grace's perspective on this. <clears throat> Talk to us about how how blessed you feel about having this journey, even though it was ten doctors, and it's a little bit more than average because we know that the average child takes about seven doctors before he or she or they are diagnosed with with um, with Lyme disease. Um, how wh where do you see the blessings in this portion of your journey, and how it ultimately allowed you to have uh, a diagnosis in about a year from you know from the at least the most severe symptoms to diagnosis. Um, one thing I wanted to just add, it is a blessing, but I think what made it possible for us to walk through this and be able to have blessings to talk about is my husband's role in this too. And I know sometimes the, the, the non-medical parent, you know, they kind of get overlooked because his emotional support in this and his support of both her symptoms and my determination made it really possible to just keep putting one step in front of the other until we got answers. And it never came between us as a married couple. It never drove, you know, there was no wedge that was created between us or between her and her dad. Like we were very cohesive as a family through this, even her sister, her sister did not understand a lot of what was going on did not always appreciate the impact that it had on her life, but the four of us were very united in something is wrong and it's impacting the four of us. And we're going to figure this out together as a family unit. And so that's a huge blessing. Yeah, it is a huge blessing. And it's a really beautiful part of your story because Lyme is an isolating disease, right? We, we have so many people that we come in contact with who are all alone trying to battle this disease. Okay. A lot of young people who are all alone trying to battle this disease. And, you know, one of the things that we're always, we always feel blessed by is when these folks come in contact with one another through our platform and through the organic community that's building around our platform. But thank God for, you know, a wonderful dad. And I certainly want to shout out to the dads. I, I, uh, I think we, we, we are often not given, uh, you know, enough acknowledgement for the role that we play, although we generally play a more minor role when our children are sick. And I think it's really wonderful that you've also identified your 
um, you know, your, your, your daughter who was not on, thankfully on this health journey, but you know, this was impacting her as well. So, um, I mean, Grace is unbelievably, unbelievably blessed to have such wonderful people believing her and supporting her and taking her, you know, through this journey as a family and everyone always believing in each other. That's really beautiful. So I, thank you for sharing that. Now I'll let Matt, I'll shut up now. I'll let Matt, uh, <laughs> you know, have some, uh, have some chat with, uh, Grace on this, uh, on this line of, uh, of, of this, uh, really beautiful journey. So Rich, I just think I want to add to what you said and get and get Grace's feedback on it because yes, Lyme is an isolating disease. However, we've learned it's also a family disease. And I've seen that in my own experience. And I think Grace, you've seen that in your experience, right? And you know, no pun intended here, or no, I guess this is a little bit of foreshadowing. You really need a partner in Lyme, right? And it sounds like your mom was your partner in Lyme. And this is something that you didn't, you know, looking back today, realize was really powerful and integral in your healing journey. So do you do you realize, I guess, talk to us about how your mom's involvement in your health and your doctors and your treatment was integral for you to feel better when you couldn't even read, you could, you know, you couldn't think, you couldn't do anything, right? I mean, how, how important was your mom's role in getting you a diagnosis and getting you better? Very important. Uh, I don't know if I would have found all the doctors by myself or, um, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to go anywhere, really, because only during daylight time. <laughs> Um, but a lot of my activities were at night too. So it would have been a big impact on my life, um, physically and probably mentally too. Um, if I didn't have her next to me and I mean, she took my notes at doc still does take my notes at doctor appointments. And a lot of the information still goes over my head. And so she has it all written down. She keeps the records. Um, and I don't know, I think we've gotten closer through this too, because we spent a lot of time together. <laughs> um, we've driven, you know, an hour to doctor appointments, an hour back, um, all the different treatments she's been with me. So it's a very important role because I might not have even been, I mean, I didn't find the doctor that initially did the Lyme test. So. So Chris, I want to hear more about Texas because mold exposure is key, right? And Rich mm -hmm. and I have been studying mold in more detail recently. And we've been rewatching a webinar of Dr. Rolls's from a, a few months ago. And you know, we know mold disrupts our immune system function. And we know it allows microbes like Lyme disease and the spirochetes and other, other microbes and other tick-borne illnesses to flourish when you're immunocompromised. So what were you down in Texas for? And talk to us about how you were exposed to mold and how extreme it was. Yeah, so I went down to um, Corpus Christi, Texas in November. So after it was three months after Hurricane Harvey hit. And so I went down to where Hurricane Harvey made landfall. And I worked on a house for the week down there and I was demoing. And I mean, you could stand on the front porch with the doors and windows open and smell the mold. And so you know, I knew I also had a mold allergy. So in hindsight, when I was put on this team and they asked, oh, does anyone have an issue with mold? I probably should have said, yes, I do. But I really was the only demo team and I really wanted to be on the demo team. So I was like, ah, I have my respirator. I'll be fine. Um, and so I worked on demoing that house all week. And I mean, it, there was black mold everywhere. The whole house was very damaged. And very water damaged and falling apart. And you'd be pulling the ceilings off the wall. And I mean, mold along with other things were falling on me. So I was exposed to that for five days, um, but didn't feel any symptoms of it. Um, but then 
a month before I fell, I was over at a friend's house and our church group was helping her because her roof had some water damage and I was inside at the time. And I was there for about three hours and that night thought I was getting a cold and then for six weeks coughed nonstop and couldn't figure out how to stop the coughing until I found an inhaler that worked for that. And that took care of it. But that was about, that was the six weeks before I fell. And so I had those two exposures happen within two months of each other. So it truly was a perfect storm, right? I mean, you know, looking at the list of mold symptoms that are also, you know, can be Lyme symptoms, coughing, wheezing, those are all symptoms of mold exposure, which you had, you had two severe exposures to mold before you fell, which was physical trauma. And you mentioned that you always knew you had an allergy to mold. So I can't help but wonder how long were you suffering from Lyme disease and possibly just being asymptomatic or managing the microbes because you were young and healthy. Then you were exposed to mold in Texas, total immune compromising event. You come back, you're helping your friend total immune compromising event. Now you're having symptoms. You're wheezing, you're coughing, you're feeling like crap. You're having these flu-like symptoms. Then you go skiing, you fall, you have physical trauma. And at that point, your body just couldn't handle it. Your immune system is so compromised. All these microbes, Lyme, and probably a ton of other things just took over. And I think that was the turning point probably for you because you had too many things happen to compromise your immune system and you just crashed. So, you know, looking back, you see now, like, it's, it's almost like this perfect, horrible chain of events that led up to that fall. Yeah, definitely. Um, it took us a while to really understand. I mean, we didn't know the mold piece until I found my Lyme doctor. And otherwise, we were just going off of the fall. And so, again, that was why I was so confusing until we put all the pieces together. And it all made a lot more sense once we realized that mold had a factor into this. And we know it's not all horrible and we're going to get there and we're going to, Rich is going to talk to you about your, what you're doing today and how you're better for it. Right. I mean, it's just amazing to see how you're doing today, but I do want to ask you, you know, have you ever, have you ever gotten tested for the HLA DR genetic deficiency, which 25% of the population has, and it makes you more susceptible to mold illness? I don't think so. I don't know if I've even heard of that. Well, we learned about it from Dr. Rolls on his webinar that we've been studying. So that's why I'm asking you these questions because it's fresh in our mind. But, you know, it's just another factor that, you know, you can overcome, right? It's something you can overcome, but it makes you more susceptible to get chronically ill from mold exposure with the perfect storm like you had. So just another another interesting point to, to think about. So now in the moment, you just think you have a concussion from not banging your head from falling, which doesn't make sense, right? Which is kind of weird. And your mom mentioned that you, you, you were seeing a naturopathic doctor at first who believed you and just didn't know what was really going on before you found the primary care doctor who diagnosed you with it. Well, ran the test and your mom realized there were a few bands of Lyme on there to then take it to a specialist. So what, walk us through what it was like when you were this sick. I mean, you, you couldn't read, right? You couldn't drive at night. And I guess give us, before we even go to that question, give us an idea as to what your symptoms are like and how severe this was when you had this crash after you fell in your skiing trip. Sure. Um, it was just the daily pounding migraines were my biggest symptom. Um, it was just, it, it, even Excedrin, like pain medicine doesn't really work for me anyway. Um, and so I would take Excedrin if I needed to. Um, but I also have the MTHFR gene mutation. So I try not to put medication in my system. Um, so it was just pounding headaches. Um, Again, a lot of my activities were at church. And so I was also on the worship team. 
And I had to get off of that because I couldn't do the music. I couldn't go to service during like on Sundays because everything was just too loud. Um, it, then I had the light sensitivity. So always wearing sunglasses, um, hats to cover the lights. Um, and that was, and then just really tired too. Um, cause then I started college that fall and I took 8 30 AM classes an hour away from where I live. And so it was just, it, it was, it was all I could do to just do school and school was also really bad. So it was just, it was a lot of just pain, a lot of, and then the back pain as well. Um, I would have numbness in my back and like my shoulder blades, um, and like stinging pain and my muscles would get really tight really easily. So I was always throwing my back out. And so all of that, it was just a lot of pain. <laughs> it sounds like inflammation too, right? It was probably the root cause of a lot of this stuff is from yes. what I'm thinking. Yes. So Grace, you did mention, and again, I'm just, I can't help but think as I'm hearing you tell your story, you mentioned you had the MTHFR genetic deficiency, which means I think in a nutshell, you really can't detox as well as other people, right? Right. And we know that what makes us sick for mold is the mycotoxins. And a mycotoxin is really something that gets created by mold to protect itself from other mold and other viruses and other bacteria. But that's the substance in our body that makes us so sick is the mycotoxin. And it's a toxin, which you have to detox, right? So you can't detox because you, or you have trouble detoxing because of this MTHFR mutation. You're exposed to mold twice. And now it's, it's making more and more sense why you had this crash, right? So the picture's right. coming together for us as we're interviewing you. And I can't help but wonder, how much of these tests should be just standard practice for people, especially young children, right? I mean, the, 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 gene, the, the gene deficiency for mold that we mentioned, the gene deficiency for detoxing that we mentioned, all of these things set the stage for you to be more susceptible and vulnerable to things like mold exposure, chronic illness, et cetera. And if you have that data, you have more information to make an informed decision when and if your health declines. And I just think that that should be part of, of more standard practice for healthcare. And I know I'm going off on a rant here, but listening to your story, I think this is a really powerful testament that can help other people avoid what you're going through. And I can see Rich wants to jump in. So Rich, go ahead. I do want to jump in because I, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it from a parental standpoint, right? Um, Jessica, you, you, you have this beautiful daughter who, who has a heart for helping other people and she wants to go down and she wants to help people who were victimized in Texas from this, this terrible, this terrible experience, right? But if you had known that she was susceptible to becoming ill as a result of having these mutations, you may not have encouraged her to participate in the demolition team, even though that's a fun thing to do. And you might not, you might have wanted to put some more bumpers around her to protect it from it. One of the things I'll share with you is I actually went down to New Orleans after uh, Hurricane Katrina, and I was on the demo team as well. And, uh, and so they trained us on how to protect ourselves from mold. But one of the things that had happened when I was wearing this suit and I had this respirator on, it was so hot. I couldn't wear the respirator. So I was on the demo team and I wouldn't wear the respirator. I was, it would, you know, I was just doing all the work without a respirator on. And at the end of the week, I had mold all over my shoes. I had to throw my boots out because I couldn't take them home because they had mold growing all over my boots. Now, thankfully I was healthy and it didn't make me sick, but I, I can tell you that I, I would really hesitate to encourage my children to do what I had done, especially if they had been tested for particular genetic mutations, would, which would make them more susceptible to it. So Justin, give me your, thought on, your thoughts on how you would have behaved differently had your daughter been tested and how you under, if you understood that this might have been uh, creating a risk for her by going down and engaging in this, you know, in this mission. Yeah, that's a really 
interesting question to ask because it's really hard to balance as a parent encouraging your child to walk in the direction of their dreams while tempering that with what makes the most medical sense given your unique situation. So I always knew that she was invested heavily and emotionally into natural disaster recovery when she was five. I believe you were five when Katrina Mm -hmm. happened. She stood in my kitchen crying, begging me to take her to go help. And I said, you're five and your sister's three and we can't do that right now. We would not be helping. We would be a hindrance. So I knew that this was something that was really important to her. I would have encouraged her not to make that trip because I think no matter what team she was on in the Corpus Christi area, there would have been mold. I mean, the whole area was infiltrated with water. So I would have encouraged her not to take that particular trip to focus her efforts and energies and talents in a different area and some other way to help pour out that natural love for loving on people in a different way. But I didn't, I didn't know. And in hindsight, I didn't really even know what a mold allergy was. I didn't know. And I didn't ask those questions because I assumed an allergy was kind of that blanket term for, you know, you take some Benadryl and you're fine because it's more of a a skin reaction. I had no idea the damage that mold does is internal, not external. And so, yeah, I would have, I would have not really, and I don't think she was 18. You were not 18 at the time. So yeah, she probably wouldn't have gone on that trip. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you certainly would have at least use some tools to help her to make better decisions about, for example, what team she'd be on. Because look, the demolition team is going to have a lot more exposure to mold than any other team, right? Right. Or you might've asked her to wait another year and and be a part of a construction team and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, and do some painting or some spackling or something that wouldn't have necessarily put her in direct contact. So I understand having a heart for wanting to go down and help. And I'm not sure doing some fundraising locally and sending the money down is necessarily going to fill that, you know, fill that, um, you know, that, that desire, um, you know, to, to help the way she wanted to help, but maybe she would have made some choices that were, would have been different on the team that she was on or wearing the respirator all the time or whatever other things you may have, you know, may have done differently. I certainly can tell you that I would have behaved differently if I had this, if I had known that I had a mold allergy and thank God I don't, but I would have behaved differently. So, you know, Matt's point, I think is a really powerful point, which is, you know, using this testing as a vehicle for giving parents and children knowledge about what their sensitivities are, could put you in a position where um, you can be healthy. So despite, um, you know, just despite your daughter clearly having come in contact with a tick as a young child and, and having, you know, a healthy enough immune system to manage that, that might've gone on for her entire life if she was aware of, you know, of, of the impact that, you know, coming in contact with mold would have had on her. And it's really a simple test that could have been done, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I love to tell people now when I talk about Lyme disease and just health in general, that information's power. And if you have information, then you have the power to know what to do when you encounter something. And I, most of my conversations have been involved more in the Lyme tick-borne disease realm, but it applies to anything. And I think in this world of genetic testing and using it to tailor medicine, it's a really important tool to have in your arsenal of, of knowing yourself as well as you can so that 
to your point, yes, you can make educated, informed decisions about risk management. Right. And you can make educated, informed decisions about how you're going to educate your children. I, I really love the model that you use to not just parent your children, but also to educate your children. Because as a homeschooling parent, you have the ability to set a curriculum that would be enriching in many different ways. And you were able to, you were able to do that in, in, in a really beautiful and powerful way. And if you had more information about your children's you know, proclivities or, or, or genetic challenges, that would have been a part of the curriculum that you had formed and you would have been able to put them in a position where they had a better understanding of how they can keep themselves safe. But you didn't have that information, so you couldn't help your children to learn that way. Correct. So let's, let's talk a little bit more now about how, um, how you um, helped your daughter once she did take the Lyme test and it didn't have the adequate number of bands to be CDC positive. What journey did that take you on and how did that help you to now help your daughter um, first get a, get a clearer diagnosis and how to help her to heal um, from what she was clearly dealing with for a good portion of her entire life. Sure. Um, I received a copy of the lab work. So whenever my kids would go for something, I would always request to have a copy of it. So the doctor got a copy of it and a copy was mailed to me. And so when I went through the lab work, I noticed that there were several red flags, mycoplasma numbers, didn't even know what that was, but it was way out of range white blood cell counts, very much out of range. Epstein-Barr virus, incredibly high. And I, she'd never been treated for mono before. So I freaked out. <laughs> I called my pediatrician and I said, can you help me understand what this means? And she said, you know, she was able to tell from the, you know, the IgG numbers, you know, whether it was a current infection or a past infection. So she kind of talked me down and said, relax, we're going to figure this out. Um, I called up my naturopathic doctor and I made an appointment and I said, I need you for you to go line by line through this with us. And I need you to take that time and help me understand what's going on with my doc, my daughter, because this doctor sent a form letter and said, she's fine. And there's no follow-up needed. And I know enough to know that she is not fine. So we made the appointment, we sat down and she went line by line through this with us and explained what these numbers meant, what the terms meant and said, clearly this warrants follow-up testing. She sent us for the Igenics profile. So we went to yet another doctor who did that blood draw, sent that off and came back and yes, confirmed that she does indeed have Lyme disease. So this took about maybe three weeks or so. In that time, I was able to come to an understanding of how I wanted to approach the doctor that dismissed her. And unfortunately myself, because even though I was listed by Grace as a parent who was involved in her healthcare, she signed that form giving me access. They would not speak to me. They would not take calls. They declined. They said Grace had to call. And I said, unfortunately, Grace is really too sick right now to talk about this blood work. So I'm doing that on her behalf. I finally got a hold of the office manager and I explained that they let a really sick girl slip through the cracks. And they said, but we're just following the CDC's protocol. She doesn't have Lyme. And I said, well, we've done follow-up testing and she does have Lyme. And if I didn't get a copy of that blood work, I would still be chasing. 
what's wrong with my kid. I'd still be going to another doctor under the assumption that it can't be all that bad because you're saying she's fine. So I really encourage them to rethink how they look at those Lyme results. If they have the foresight to order it on every blood work that comes through that office, have the the deeper understanding and awareness to know what an accurate diagnosis and um, what it is and that the CDC may not be as informed on what chronic Lyme looks like. So you may be able to see, I know our listeners can't see, my ears are red because I'm getting so angry about listening to this portion of your journey. And, and there are two things that are really pissing me off. The first is uh, the first is the way doctor's offices use this sort of privacy right as a, essentially a vehicle for refusing to communicate with parents. And I, fa- I, found, I found that very frustrating. Instead of essentially saying, hey, we're empowering children and young people to make their own decisions and allow them to determine um, uh, how to proceed with their care, what doctors are using it as is an excuse not to communicate with us, an excuse not to allow us to empower our children. And uh, it seems that that's exactly what happened in your experience. So talk to us about how that was frustrating for you and what you did to overcome that so other people going through this cannot have that same experience where doctors are using privacy rights really as laziness rights. Mm -hmm. I believe wholeheartedly that God's timing is perfect. And I knew if I was able to get that doctor or the office manager on the phone any earlier, I would not have been able to communicate calmly and effectively. And I would have come across as that angry mom who they would have seen as a helicopter parent micromanaging their daughter's care. So enough time had passed that I was able to relax and and take a few deep breaths and have a conversation in a way that may have been received. I'm not sure that it was, but at least I felt like I put that information out there in a way that was from a, a place of of love and not really just being angry. Um, even though I I was angry about what happened, you are so much better than me. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm trying because it's, it's a journey and this whole chronic illness community, we all have a different journey through it. And so my younger daughter said to me one time and it stuck with me, she said, mom, you know, we don't want to make someone's day harder than it has to be. And that was one of those light bulb moments where your kid teaches you something. And I thought, I don't want to make this person's day harder than it needs to be. I don't want to, to yell. I don't want to raise my voice at her. I don't want to be that, that person, but I do want to communicate that we live in an area where they are probably turning away other people as well. My daughter cannot be the only one that came through this practice that was dismissed. And I can't be the only parent that wasn't spoken to with respect as a partner in her care. So yeah, it was, it was frustrating. And I think that I do know some parents who have gone on to seek legal um, and you might be able to speak to this power of attorney for their children so that that can't happen to them so that they can effectively make healthcare decisions. And, you know, I, I would love to know personally more about that because if my daughter didn't improve and we were still in the cycle of trying to get effective care and treatments, at what point do you need to become a power of attorney for your child's medical decisions? Because it's not even just office primary care physicians, the hospitals are doing this repeatedly in our area of just completely dismissing parents, especially with tick-borne diseases. And that 
really infuriates me because you are supposed to trust these people and these places as someplace that you can go for help and for medical care and treatment and not be dismissed and not be spoken down to condescendingly and not be turned away. Let me talk about the second thing that pissed me off. The second thing that pissed me off is that uh, the CDC guidelines are not what the doctors said they are. In fact, the CDC guidelines provide that diagnostic testing is an element of a Lyme disease diagnosis and that a, di a Lyme disease diagnosis should be clinically based using in part the test. But what your doctor said was, hey, the blood tests show that she doesn't have, she's not CDC positive, therefore she's okay, even though you have this kid who's really sick, who has all kinds of symptoms, whose mother's pointing out that she's really sick, they're saying, hey, we're gonna send a letter that says, you're fine. That really pisses me off. Tell me about how you feel about that as a parent. Even put Lyme to the side, because if they didn't wanna to touch the controversy that surrounds the CDC, there were still four other major markers of inflammation and infection that they either lumped together with Lyme because maybe they knew, or they just didn't want to address. And so it infuriates me that we have to, at times, almost know more than our doctors. We need to be our kids' biggest advocate and to get all this information because it really, it affected my trust in doctors. And I was already a little leery of, of the medical community. Um, like I said, I have a natural affinity for natural medicine. I believe in doing things as holistically as possible until you can't. And then I believe that there is a place for pharmaceuticals, for surgical interventions. They're, they're there for a reason, but not necessarily the first line of treatment. That's my own personal belief. So this just drove me a little bit further away from trusting doctors because I don't know how many are purely in the practice for caring and how many have ulterior motives in the medical community. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate to not be able to fully trust the people that you are literally putting your lives in their hands. So Jessica, you got ahead of me. I was going to ask you about that piece of it, but I want you to stay with me on the CDC piece, right? The, the, because essentially what the doctors had said to you was your daughter is not CDC positive, therefore she doesn't have Lyme disease, but that's not what the CDC guidelines say. What the CDC guidelines say is that a test is an element of a diagnosis, and she clearly had all the symptoms of someone suffering from Lyme disease and a clinical diagnosis should have been made, but they use the CDC as an excuse to be lazy and not to give her the diagnosis and the treatment that she needed. So let's just focus on that piece of it, not the rest of it, which is pissing me off too, but let's, let's just focus individually on the Lyme piece of it and how they use the guidelines incorrectly to put you and your family in a position where your journey was longer and not having a really diligent mother who was a pit bull and dug her teeth into this and went through this battle, your daughter would still be really, really sick. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about how they abuse the definition that the CDC is giving them, even though the CDC sucks too. <laughs> you know, when you're in that moment and you don't even know what Lyme is, unless, I don't know, I didn't know what Lyme is. So I didn't know what Lyme 
could do in terms of impacting your body. So when they say you are not CDC positive, you don't have Lyme, unless you have a real good understanding, I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know what the CDC's guidelines were for Lyme. I didn't know, honestly, maybe it's naive to even admit, I didn't know that the CDC was setting guidelines on certain illnesses. I, I didn't know. So I didn't turn to Google and type in CDC guidelines for Lyme disease or, you know, diagnostic criteria. I didn't, I didn't even think to do that because I was not where I am now. I was just beginning to understand the complexities of this. So I, I, I knew in my gut that the doctor was wrong, but when the doctor said she doesn't meet the criteria, okay, I guess she doesn't meet the criteria. But when the doctor that I went to in response to that sat down with me and said, oh, no, 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 we are going to get her further testing because these bands that are showing up, we're not dismissing that there's something going on and we're going to get better testing from a lab that only specializes in tick-borne disease. And we're going to see what they have to say and then compare it. So at that point, I thought, oh, there's more to this than what I originally thought, which you know, is, is Lyme disease is, I don't want to say no big deal, but something you take two weeks of medication for, and you hopefully, you know, you're better. I did not understand at that time in this journey, what chronic Lyme, what I, I didn't even know what I was walking into. So while I have that anger now at that moment, I didn't, I didn't have the anger because I didn't know I should have had it. So Grace, I want to ask you how long it was. So you were 17 when you had the fall, when you were skiing and how old were you when you finally got diagnosed with Lyme disease? How long was that period? Uh, it was almost exactly a year. So it was April of 2019. And Grace, your mom had mentioned though that one of your doctors, I believe it was your, neuro your neurologist, she said earlier, was sort of just kind of not taking it seriously and almost implying that it wasn't real. So did you ever doubt that you were really sick? Did that ever come into your mind? Like, am I making this bigger than it is? Is this just normal? Is there something else going on? Did you ever have any doubt that you were truly sick? Um, I don't think so. I think because I knew what it was to be healthy and then this happened and I saw everything that people my age were doing that I couldn't do, that I, there was something going on and that it was real. I don't think I ever doubted that it wasn't something um, because it was, it was just like, there's just so much pain. So it's like, there's something causing it. There's a root to the problem. And this is around the time you should have been starting college, right? So was this impacting your ability to go to community college? Were you going and suffering? How did this, how did this work around this time of your life? Uh, I was going and suffering. Um, so I started, um, my, my first semester and, you know, I was excited because I had come from you know, a non-traditional environment. So to go into an, uh, a typical school environment, I thought it was going to be fun and different and I was going to make a whole bunch of friends and it was going to be awesome. Um, granted, I went an hour away and I commuted. So that alone makes it hard to meet people. And I started every Monday morning with math at 8.30 in the morning. And math was one of the hardest things for me to do because of the way it affected my brain. And so that was really frustrating to do three hours of math Monday and Wednesday mornings, and then go right into another class after that. And so I would get out of school completely drained. Um, and so then 
in the winter semester, the spring semester, I took three classes instead of four or five. So I kind of dwindled it back a little bit and was only there two days a week versus four days. So I got all my classes done on those two days. Um, and then once I was diagnosed was about three weeks before my finals were due. And so I had a lot of stuff to get done because a lot of my classes were project-based and you just have to put a lot of time into the projects. And at that point I had started uh, antibiotics and they just completely messed me up. And so I, you know, was able to get out of a class. She sent me on my way. She said, I was all set. I did all the work. You're good to go, go finish this other stuff you need to do. And so the teachers did give me grace on it, but it was also really stressful because I remember I was sitting on the lab floor and the professor looks at me, he's like, are you okay? It's like, no, no, I'm not okay, but I'm here. Um, I'm doing the best I can. Um, I've learned to put on a pretty good face and, you know, unless people can look at my face and, and understand that I'm hurting, you wouldn't know because again, it, it's all internal. It's not external. You can't see it. It's an invisible disease. So it definitely affected school. And then come the next semester, um, I was so tired that my parents would help drive me. And I only took one class because just that class alone, it was really bad class. And so that class alone took so much physical and mental, just, it just took so much out of me. And it would, it took out of a normal person. It took that much out of a normal person. And then to add all my, you know, all my hardships and stuff into that, it just, they just helped me a lot with driving and homework help and all of that fun stuff until my last semester, I was still taking one class. Um, and then COVID hit and it all went online. And so. So Chris, I want to get a picture. So it sounds like you got diagnosed at the end of your first year. So I guess it was yes. this, the spring semester, correct? Yes. Okay. So you got diagnosed, you're on antibiotics, you were able to get through that semester, thank God, because your teachers are flexible and that's when everything began. So I kind of want to connect it back to what your mom was describing for Rich. You went back to your naturopath. You looked at the results of the blood work. You realized that that you really should do a follow-up with hygienics. Hygienics comes back. You know you have Lyme disease and you start to treat. So are you treating with your naturopath or are you finding a specialist at this point so, because your naturopath really didn't know to begin with what about Lyme disease? Right. So we started with an uh, LLMD, a Lyme letter doctor. And so I went to him and that's when he started me on, well, no. First, I went back to my pediatrician. She gave me the first two weeks of doxy. And then I got started with the, the Lyme literate doctor. And that's when I started all of my other treatment protocols was through him. But no, my naturopath sent me out because he's not an expert in it. So what was your thought about going through all this confusing stuff? Because I know before I got sick, you get a test, you're positive, or you're negative, you get treatment, and you feel better. You don't realize what chronic illness is. You only know acute illness. You don't really know there is a thing such as chronic illness when you're healthy. I mean, I didn't at least. So what was it like for you to go through this, this sort of merry-go-round of testing? You have Lyme, you don't have Lyme. You have some bands, but it's not positive enough. Like that gray area in testing, how are you responding to that? You know, obviously your mom was, was being very aggressive to fight. But what did you think of all that? Uh, it was very frustrating. It was a long process and it, it you just want an answer because every time you leave the doctor, they're like, yeah, we, we don't really know. And you would leave just feeling kind of even more defeated. And that just kept going on and on and on. And 
even when I got the Lyme diagnosis, I had people telling me, oh, you really don't want Lyme and you don't necessarily want this diagnosis because it's not something that's an easy fix. So I wanted that diagnosis, but at the same time I didn't because I didn't know what that would entail. And it was just, it was a long process and it was, it was a frustrating one. So now I have to ask, cause now you're, you're older, you have a Lyme diagnosis, you're in college and you're living in Connecticut still. So when you were younger, you told me that you only knew people that, you know, that had, you know, their, their, their legs got swollen and they were, they were fine, you know, but are you starting to now communicate with other people sharing what's going on and to realize the severity of Lyme and how serious it can be and how chronically debilitating it can be for somebody? Yeah. I mean, pretty much I don't hide it. Like I don't hide my diagnosis from people. So right off the bat, when I meet someone, I usually tell them because it's such a big part of my life that I'll tell them, oh yeah, I have Lyme disease. And they usually say, oh yeah, I know so-and-so who had it. Or most of the people up here know either they have it or they have had it, which is another story, or they know someone who has had it. And so, especially when I was just diagnosed, it was so encouraging to meet people who had it because you feel like you just kind of are understood. Um, Cause you know, it's something that's, when I tell them that I feels like I have ants crawling in my back, not a lot of people understand that they're just like, what you're crazy. Um, and yeah, so a lot of people know pretty much everyone I know knows I have it. They've seen me on my good days. They've seen me on my bad days. Um, but yeah, they, they pretty much all know. So, but let's talk about that. Grace. So when you first got diagnosed, you went back to your pediatrician, you were on two weeks of doxy and you were starting to share with people. So I have two, two follow-up questions to that. The first one is, as you were sharing what you were diagnosed with and people were telling you that they either had it or have it and the whole had it thing, I know it's another discussion that we'll probably get to um, that I think we all, we all agree on. But when they were giving you feedback that they had it as well and understood how bad it was, were they giving you any good advice early on that helped you when you first got diagnosed? Um, all the advice that I got, I would try and none of it worked. <laughs> Like so, what, what were some examples of, of advice? Or uh, things the sauna treatments, everyone raved about them. It made me feel so much worse. Um, so that didn't work. The, is it the PEMF machine? Yes. People swore by that. It did absolutely nothing. Cupping therapy. Uh, oh, it fixed tendonitis, but it didn't fix anything in my back, which people swore by. Um, I don't even, there's been so many things. Oh, acupuncture. Yeah, no. Um, so there's been a lot of things that people would, you know, say, oh, I heard about this or, oh, I've done this. Um, more so on like the Facebook community, I, I would see things, but none of it really worked for me. So it was almost fr- like even more frustrating just because they had such a good outcome. And then I would go try it and it's just either it was, it didn't work or it made it worse. Yeah. and. And I think it, it matters what you have going on in your body because the Lyme is just one piece of the puzzle. So right. your mom had noted that you had mycoplasma, EBV, you had mold exposure, clearly you had Lyme. And, and when you ran the hygienic testing, did you do a full tick-borne disease panel or just Lyme? Did you ever look for other co-infections too? We looked for um, Bartonella. Bartonella never came up as positive, but she is clinically positive because she had the marks for it. Um, but no, we didn't do a huge panel. We just, we focus most of it on online. 
And I think that's smart too to save money because it is pretty expensive. If you had the classic Bartonella rash, you had Bartonella, right? I mean, that's, right, that's right. pretty clear. So and I think a lot of leading line doctors will support that theory. Why spend money if you don't have to when you can make a, a pretty obvious clinical diagnosis there? So you know now you're realizing that it's not just I have chronic Lyme disease and it's a one size fits all solution because just because Matt did this doesn't mean it's going to help me, Grace, right? So you're starting to get frustrated cupping and PMF and sauna. It's not helping you at all. And you're probably spending time and money and effort and energy that you frankly don't have energy to do anything with. So you're also doing the doxycycline with your pediatrician before you went to your Lyme specialist that you found, your Lyme litter doctor. Did you feel anything when you first started the doxy? Did you hurt? Did you feel better? Did you feel worse? Um, no, I definitely felt worse. Um, I realized you have to eat it or you have to eat it. You have to take it on a full stomach. And if you don't, you will almost throw up. So that was fun. Um, it made me like, I had some fatigue, but I wouldn't even consider that fatigue because after I started doxy, I was just wiped out 24 seven. Um, every night sleep, I would get, you know, a normal night sleep, but it feel like an hour of sleep, the pain, the muscle pain, um, that I, didn't have before and like my legs or other just parts of my body. Like it was really just confined to the back before doxy. And now it's, you know, migrating muscle pain and tiredness. Um, and then the migraines and all that was still there for a bit too. I'm trying to think of anything else that. It made you worse though, Grace. Right? I mean, you, you started having yes. full body pain instead yes. of just back pain. I went from being able to do things and not, other than the migraines, I could still function as a human being to walking up a flight of stairs takes me out. Like I'm done for the day after that. But let's define function, right? Because I think so many of us do this. You said you could function before doxy, but you couldn't read. You couldn't drive at night, debilitating <laughs> migraines. So could you really function? I mean, we all do this, right? But it just shows how strong you are that in your mind, that was normal and you were functioning despite being, I mean, totally broken, right? I mean, that's, that's strength on your part, Grace. So, you know, looking back, you really think you were functioning? Um, yes and no. I mean, I've still said to this day that I would trade them. Like I would have them, I would rather have the migraines aspect of it to the fatigue and body aches because I don't know. I, I feel like I still had more of a life because I could still have energy to do things where when it was the fatigue and all of that, I mean, I spent that summer on the couch watching Grey's Anatomy and that was my summer because I physically couldn't do anything. You may have had a better quality of life pre-doxy and treatment, but you still were suffering and in great pain. Yes. And that becomes normal and acceptable because everybody's telling you you're okay, right? And psychologically you accept that. And I think that's something that many of us kind of go through. All right. So Grace, when you first went to your Lyme literate doctor, walk us through what that was like and how it was different than any other doctor you've been to before. It was a lot of information and a lot of words that I had never heard before. Um, and it was like when I, my first appointment, he asked a lot about like my background and how I grew up and what I did as a kid. And I'd never really been asked that by, you know, doctors before, because to me, that was just my life. But then as we were going through my, you know, my childhood background, you know, that's when the mold questions came up. That's when my food sensitivities came up. Um, and it all made sense as to why he was asking all those questions. Um, so it was very different. It wasn't just a quick, 
you look in your ear, you look down your throat, you're good to go. It was a three hour appointment and a lot of information and a lot of it went over my head. So were you continuing with the doxycycline after your first visit with this new Lyme litter doctor or did you change course and change up your treatment protocol? I flipped. So I would do doxy for two weeks and then was it amoxicycline? What was it? Minocycline. Minocycline for two weeks and flip-flop the two. Um, I also was on, you're going to have to help me. Which one though? I think minocycline. The minocycline made my hair fall out. And so that I stopped because it was falling out in clumps. Um, there was another one I was on. Clindamycin. What is it? Clindamycin. Yeah, that one made a like metallic taste in my mouth. That was absolutely disgusting. And so I stopped that and we would just kind of go back and forth with some of the antibiotics, but they, every single one of them screwed up my stomach. I never had stomach issues before. Um, and so they all screwed up. Like I had no appetite. Um, I gained 30 pounds with the antibiotics. Um, I just was not healthy and I didn't feel healthy. How long were you on them for? About nine months. So that December, I decided to take myself off of them um, because I was only getting worse and I wasn't getting better. And I feel like, you know, they just, all this medication was just being pushed. And so I just decided to take a break and just get off of them. And just reset and just figure out a new step because I was also, um, they kept trying to treat me for mold, which I know was part of the reason why the Lyme symptoms started, but I kept getting tested for mold in my system and there was none. And so they just wanted to keep going down this path of mold when it does, it didn't seem like mold was the issue anymore. And so I just decided to take a reset and look for other options on how to treat because the medication was not helping. So you were, talk to us about the mold. So you were using all these antibiotics for about nine months, but they were treating the mold as well. So how are they treating the mold during this nine month window? She was using a specific binder that had to come from a compounded um, pharmacy, pharmacy. I don't remember the name of it, but she would take that at night um, combined with the, the, I was on a lot of herbal tinctures. Her list was so comprehensive <laughs> that I would come home from her doctor appointments and translate it into a spreadsheet, put the spreadsheet on the cabinet so that we would literally check off when she took everything. So we didn't take it too soon. It didn't interact with other things. So keeping track of all the different protocols that she was on was pretty hard. And I don't remember exactly what we did to tackle the mold other than the specific binder, um, detox, and I know when we, before we started this, we did the Picana, um, the big three, like to open up the drainage pathways, but I don't remember exactly what we did in terms of the mold remediation. So with this Lyme specialist, you were doing alternating antibiotics. It was the doxy, the minnow and the clindamycin, and you were doing binders for mold and you mentioned tinctures as well. So are these proprietary tinctures made by your Lyme litter doctor or were they something you were buying online, like some sort of some a supplement company that you were buying online? Yeah, so he um, had it all in this, like in his office that you could just buy. And so it was, they were made by other companies, but uh, he just, 
they were ones that he approved of and saw other people improving with. Did you ever look into to see what were those tinctures, what specific herbs, what specific blends, or is that something at that point you, you didn't really dive that deep into? We knew some of them, like we were doing, you might know if I say the A-BART, I forget the name of the manufacturer of that protocol. So we were doing some of those. They would throw different things to see if something stuck with her and it usually didn't. So she was on the A-BART for a while. Um, was, it the, was it Byron White? Was that, was it yes, his product? Yes, that's Byron exactly what it was. Thank you. Yeah. So you cat's claw, cat's claw is a very strong, you know, antimicrobial as well. So it sounds like though you were doing all these things and you still weren't getting better. Right. So I have to ask at this point, so you did stop at the end of the nine months, looking back now, why do you think you didn't get better when you were on binders, herbals, and antibiotics? You know, what, what is your thought today as to why that wasn't a good combination and why you continue to get worse and never get better? I think it was really from the antibiotics. I think even, even as a kid, medication just never sat well with me. And so putting all of this medication in my body, in a body that doesn't detox well to begin with, and then to expect my gut to be fine with that, it wasn't. And so I think I needed to, like the next step was healing my gut and healing like the, the all the detoxing and all of that, and just getting all of those medications out of my system. But I, I truly think it was the antibiotics that just, it just was not working and it just made everything worse. Grace, your mom said that you were detoxing before you started and, she, and, and Jessica, you mentioned the big three. So what, what, what is the big three? What were you doing to detox prior and during this nine month window of treatment? Yeah, I wish I would tell somebody when they were starting this journey to understand detox better because going into this, we didn't really understand why it was necessary. So they put her on, it's a homeopathic remedy for liver detoxification and to help the body prepare itself for what's to come. So it's like preparing for the hurricane. Um, and so she was on that for a while, but even that she didn't like the way it made her feel. It made her muscles very weak. There were days where she could not walk up the stairs. She would crawl up the stairs. And the only thing she was really taking at that point was, was that, um, we were encouraged to seek out sauna treatments. So we were doing that. We were going to a doctor's office um, and doing sessions with them, but that didn't, that made her feel horrible. And we were doing slow as you go, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, starting at a low temperature, building it up. So we were thinking that we were doing it the right way with doctor's supervision, but that wasn't helping her to feel better. Oh, and the one thing that did help her feel better was lymphatic massage like that actually helped her feel better and so she would go for the massage treatment and then for a few days after her pain levels would be lower and she would feel like she had a little bit of a relief and then the other thing that helped um, was halo therapy going to a salt room and so sitting there for an hour and just kind of breathing in this salt filled air seemed to give her a boost in terms of energy and a decrease of pain symptoms so those two things worked, but everything else, um, it didn't really seem to show any correlation with symptom decrease. I have to ask this question because this has been brought up a lot recently. So you mentioned that when you were just detoxing, that you still felt worse and it was just detox. You weren't on any of the antibiotic shit and you weren't doing any of these other things. And that's not something you expected, right? And a lot of people make the comment that 
when you take a binder or you detox, you're not going to feel worse. You won't hurt, right? And I think that's something looking back that that's something that needs to be really re-examined because if we define a HERX as bacterial die-off creating toxins that our body responds to and which creates inflammation and symptoms, I guess it's really not a HERX, but you can have a flare from detox, which I don't think we talk about enough, meaning when you have these toxins, which, which grace you clearly had toxins, you had a ton of mycotoxins from mold, mm-hmm. you had a ton of toxins in your body because we know when you, when you are sick with things like Lyme disease, toxins will recirculate in your body and they will not be processed through your liver to be purged from your body. So when you're detoxing, you're mobilizing toxins. And if you're that toxic, you will get sick by mobilizing these toxins, bringing them out into your bloodstream and activating an immune response, creating inflammation. So, you know, what do you think about that looking back as a, as a caution for people that are sick and possibly very toxic? And you did mention, I know, Jessica, you said you started slow and steady, but it still was pretty aggressive. So, you know, what are your thoughts thinking about that looking back about the detox period of your treatment and having worsening symptoms as a result of it? I almost wish we didn't go the antibiotic route first, like the first thing we did. Um, I wish we had looked more into the natural route and tried that first because I feel like it maybe wouldn't have been as much of a reaction so quickly. Uh, maybe I, I don't, I don't know, but I feel like it would have just maybe slowed the process down and allowed time for my body to understand what was going on instead of pushing all of the antibiotics through and changing it up so quickly that my body didn't know what to do with that. And so just that and drinking more water, because every time I went to the doctor, I didn't drink enough water. Hydration is huge, but I think, I think you're hitting on something here that is interesting because you're taking antibiotics which we know antibiotic usage will create candida in your gut. And we know candida in your gut will prevent you from properly detoxing and you having trouble to detox to begin with. So you're just, you're sort of, you're using antibiotics, which are killing pathogens, but you're making your detox problem even worse and you're becoming more toxic, right? So, you know, it's sort of this, like this battle of we're going to mobilize the toxins by detoxing. We're taking antibiotics, which is creating candida, which is making us not be able to detox as well. We're recirculating toxins and your body was just going through this war, right? So, and you know, it was interesting is, and, and Richard shaking his head for those that obviously can't see it on this podcast about just going with the natural route and going slow and steady, you wouldn't have reacted as bad, but you know, Rich who's healthy recently has gone through a detox regimen and at a very, very small dose, he had a very strong reaction because who knows, there's a lot of reasons why. And, you know, we suspect possibly mold exposure, possibly candida, but he's had to go very slowly, slowly to build up and he's healthy. He doesn't have any symptoms. So I think we're all different in that regard and we have to take a gentle approach. And if we are reacting very poorly, we need to pull back to a point that's manageable before we just go full on and, and increase our pain and suffering, which you were already so much at that point, Grace. So, um, I think, I think I very much agree with what you're saying. Now I want to focus on the period of where about nine, 10 months in and you're like, you know what? I'm done at this point. I'm not getting any better. I'm done. So do you leave this Lyme litter doctor? Do you tell him that you're done and you want to try something different? What do you do at this point? So he was taking a step back from the practice. And so we were kind of starting with another doctor in the practice. And by that point, it just, I kept getting being told the same things. It's mold, it's mold, take this, take this. And so I did decide to leave and just, that's when I went back to my naturopath and we told him, you know, we know that you're not a Lyme literate doctor. 
but here's my case here's what i'm having trouble with can you help with anything that can help detox my system and after that i also went on a um, program called plexus and that's a, a gut health program and so i started doing that at the same time as i started going back to the naturopath and just kind of trying to rebuild my gut so grace i want to stop you there because plexus is something that i think in the social media world especially in the lyme community we find a lot of people get very aggressive and pushy to try to sell us plexus because they make money off it that's how they make a living and I think it turns a lot of us off to the product because of that marketing scheme and how aggressive people can be with us when we're so sick. But I guess the question I want to ask you, despite all that and how it can be a turnoff, do you believe Plexus was helpful or powerful in your healing journey? I do. I um, actually was one of my youth leaders in high school who was you know, the seller of it. And it completely fixed her juvenile, not juvenile, rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis. And she sent me videos um, on how it had affected people in the Lyme community. And at this point, I was just willing to try anything that wasn't antibiotics. And so since I had heard good things about it, um, she had a very positive response to it. I trusted her. Uh, I did decide to give that a try. And I really do think that that was a part of, of healing and, and starting to feel better was um, the regimen that that program puts you on. And you're not alone. Leon Escobar, who we love and interviewed on this podcast, she uses Plexus on a regular basis as well and had great benefits from it, specifically with repairing her gut health. So is that where you feel it really helped you the most is with repairing the damage to your gut from the antibiotics? Yes, I do. I after started after I started Plexus, um, a lot of like because I would start having stomach aches or no appetite. You know, I wouldn't want to eat. And after I started Plexus, I could tell that my stomach was feeling better. I was starting to get an appetite back. Um, even like my skin tone was starting to come. Like I was very pale and washed out and I looked sick. And after starting that, I noticed my hair was, was coming in like thicker because I had lost so much of it. And that I physically was starting to look a little bit better and more like myself. And it didn't help necessarily with like the fatigue or anything, but I think it definitely helped with the gut and allowing me to, feel better in that aspect. And I guess as your, your gut's feeling better, you're able to eat more, you're getting more nutrition. And we know that nutrition is really important in recovery as well, right? And we know that we know that vegetables and, and fibrous foods are going to help you detox more than any, any pharmaceutical, right? So as you're healing your gut and you're able to eat more, it now becomes this, this multiply effect where you're getting nutrition to help recover and restore your body as well, right? Right. And I think like another aspect of the nutrition was a couple months after that. Um, this was in November of 2020. I sat down with a nutritionist because at this time I was pulling people from all different aspects of the natural world to kind of create a team versus just having one doctor, but almost having a team of people to help in different areas of my life. And so she um, actually came from my naturopath office, but had started her own practice. So I went to her. And she sat, I sat down with her, told her what I was looking for in my goals and what I wanted, like what I wanted in a year to, to feel like. And so I ended up taking a food sensitivity test with her. And before this, I had added a lot of protein into my life to start like 
just eating healthier. And because after, you know, after a year of baking during COVID and then add lime back on it, I was not my healthiest and I wanted to get back to being healthy. And so I added, you know, I started cutting some carbs. I started adding protein. So eggs, peanut butter, um, like chicken, all these things to help just give me that protein to build back my muscle. And after taking the food sensitivity test, I noticed that a lot of the foods that I was, I thought were helping me were actually doing more harm and causing more inflammation. So the peanut butter was a very high marker. Eggs were a very high marker along with gluten and dairy, which I had already known. Um, Shrimp, which we were making on tacos once a week, very high marker. Blueberries, pineapples that I put in smoothies, very high marker. So I had to completely change how I looked at eating and change how I looked at preparing food and what foods were actually healthy for me. And it was very hard. It was a, that was a really hard day. I could still have coffee and chocolate. So we have that little hope, but I couldn't eat so many of the foods that I was used to eating. And so that it was a real, it was a good change, but it was a really hard change to look at food that way. And especially on the holidays, it, it was a really difficult change, but after I cut all the foods that were causing so much inflammation, I started losing the weight I wanted to lose. I started, um, the inflammation in, you know, like my face was always puffy from inflammation that started to go down. Um, I was finally mentally feeling better because I started looking like my old self, which gave me some hope. That's amazing. And I think there's a couple of really powerful tips here for our listeners. The first one is you went into your nutritionist. Well, before that, even you built a team, you went back to your, your naturopath who's been with you all along, but didn't know much about Lyme. And you said, I want to use you as a member of my team. And I'm going to bring on a nutritionist. I'm going to build a team of people that I'm going to set goals with. And you said to your nutritionist, this is how I feel. I don't like how I feel. This is how I want to feel. And this is when I want to feel that way. Help me get there. So you went in, And you set the expectation and then you set the goals that you wanted, which I think is setting yourself up for success with your doctors, right? That's a really first important, powerful tip I think you share with us. The second one is you're eating foods that are known to be inflammatory, carbs and sugar, COVID, we all get it, right? But then you said, you know what, I'm not not happy with this. I need to make a change. And you made that change. So now you're removing known inflammatory foods. And you're now eating things like peanut butter and, and shrimp and things that you think are going to help you get protein and be healthy and get vitamins. But those weren't even good for you. Those are traditionally known foods to be healthy for people. But it turns out you have food sensitivities to them, right? So how I guess the, the question I want to ask you about that is what test specifically did you run? Was it a blood test? Was it a scratch test? How did you know what food you were allergic to? It was a, a finger prick blood test. It was called fit. And so she gave that it's a, you do it at home and it's like a little, um, a block test. So you just block the blood on like these little circles on the little piece of paper they give you send that in. It takes about two weeks or so to get your results. And then we did the one that would show you the most results. There's like different levels of the food sensitivities and they're all different. Like they cost all different amounts, but we were like, if we're going to do this, let's just do it. And so we got all of them back. And then she kind of looked at the markers and it ranges from one to four. And one is it, you know, it doesn't really mean anything Two, you have to be cautious about how often 
if it's a level three, she cautioned me to only have it twice a week. So like beef and pork came up on that. Honey came up on that. Soy came up on that. Um, so certain things you can see it all laid out. And then the number fours were, were kind of absolutely don't have. So gluten, dairy, uh, egg, pineapples, blueberries, kiwi, um, all of these really interesting mushrooms came up on that, hmm. um, shrimp came up. So it's all of these foods that you wouldn't even think of, but then you realize, oh, okay. I do have a lot of that in my diet. And so you take a look at what exactly you're eating. And then after that, you go from there and you start seeing, you know, what foods should I be eating? What foods are healthy for me? It will actually give me the boost I need to start healing. I think Grace, it's data, right? So you, your body was starting to develop these signals to know what was going on, but now you have this data set to be able to correlate with how you're feeling. So you're thinking, wow, when I'm eating blueberries, I maybe you don't feel that great, but who would think that because blueberries are, are healthy. So right. now you're having, you're, you're, you're having this data to then make conclusions by seeing results when you actually eat that food and then make wise decisions within your diet. So can you say the name again of, of the test just so if people are listening? Is, is it is something you, you mailed away through a website, through a, through a service, or did you have to do it through your dietitian in her office? The doctor gave us the kit. It's the FIT, food sensitivity test. FIT. And so we had our next door neighbor, who's a nurse, do the finger prick because she didn't want to do it herself. And I didn't really want to do that for her. So our neighbor did that, did the finger prick, did all the blotting, and then you package it up at home. You send it there, you pay the company directly. And then they sent the results to our naturopath or to the nutritionist. And so we made an appointment with her and then she was able to lay it all out on the table with us and show us a different plan for what will get her to her optimal health. So Grace, now you're taking this, this natural approach, right? You're doing plexus, you're restoring your gut, you're eating better because of plexus, you're realizing what food you should and shouldn't have, even the ones that aren't as commonly known, and you're starting to feel better. What else are you doing? So you stop the antibiotics, you're, you're, you're repairing yourself from, from some of the damage that was done from the antibiotics. Is there anything else you're doing? Any other doctors you're seeing that are playing a role in your healing? So I started the Dr. Rawls program, the Restore Kit, and that was that was the first time I started seeing any glimpse of hope within the whole journey of actually having a little bit of energy. And so I would, I did his, like the 12 pills in the morning, 12 pills at night and worked my way up to the 12. And I would say by three or four months in, I started noticing I was able to do things and not get as tired as quick. And so I've been on that now for a year and a half. And this summer I was even able to go hiking in Acadia and oh I did like an actual real hike. And that was that I have to give credit to the, the Dr. Rawls program, because that was how I started to get my energy back and not getting super fatigued. I mean, I still get fatigued, but not as quickly. And I can actually have days where I can do things. So I just want to put this in perspective, because I think it's so beautiful, your story, your transformation that you believed you had a good quality of life when you were suffering with debilitating migraines. You couldn't read, right? I mean, I just keep going back to this because it's like how strong you are to think that that's a normal, healthy quality of life is, is just for me, I'd be, I'd be in bed crying crippled, right? So to hear you tell me that is, is interesting. And then to say you got even worse where you were, you were homebound and bedbound because of the fatigue and the symptoms and you're treating and getting worse from the, from the antibiotics. And then thanks to natural things, 
and you're creating it to the restore kit by Dr. Rawls and Vital Plan, and now you're a year and a half into the restore kit, you're hiking again, right? I mean, that is so powerful to hear you go through this journey that you've gone through and learn what you've learned. And I know that this podcast and the lessons you've taught us, and there've been so many, are gonna help other people shortcut their healing journey and not have to get delayed the way you did to get to a place to feel better like you are today. And I know we all struggle. I'm not saying you're perfect today and none of us are. And this is something that I think we learn as we go on, but it really is a beautiful transformation and a beautiful story. So is there anything else that you're doing? So obviously the Restore Kit, I mean, everybody listens to this podcast. Those Rich and I are a huge fan. We both take it. It's been transformational in my life. It's been transformational in Rich's life. It's it's so many people we know take it and have had great benefits from it. But is there anything else you're doing? So you got Plexus, you have dietary changes, you have the Restore Kit, which the Restore Kit obviously is antimicrobial, antiviral, antiparasitic. It's immune modulating. I mean, it's, it, it helps your cellular your, your cells and, and helps repair cellular damage. But is there anything else you're doing up until the present date that you feel has been helpful in your healing journey? Mm-hmm. I have been working with a massage therapist. Um, I started with him. It's funny. He was actually one of the dads at my photo shoots. And he said, oh, I'm a massage therapist. And I said, oh, I'm going to come to you. <laughs> and so that was over a year ago. And he's been helping me. Um, I noticed that, you know, I've been trying to see if I can push it like to a month in between visits. And I definitely know he's helping because my month is almost up and I'm ready to go back to him. And so he's been definitely helping me. And then I've been working with a chiropractor, neurologist, physical therapist, all in one who understands Lyme, which does that work? It's a chiropractor, neurologist, physical therapist. Yes. Right. Is that what you said? So how yes. does that work? What do they do? So he, um, he actually understands Lyme cause he has had Lyme, which is number like, that's such a great blessing just in that. Cause he understands that every week I come to him with some kind of different symptom and he fixes it. And so, um, he's been working a lot with the brain connection to everything and all the pathways being right. And mine are not right. And so he's been trying to fix that. Um, especially with the, like the numbness and the tingling in my back. And so we've been doing, remind me, what is the ear? Vag, I don't have to pronounce it vagus or vagus nerve. Vagus, vagus nerve. Yep. Yes. So we've been doing, um, therapy for that. And I have noticed that my back, like the tingling and the numbness has gotten a lot better. It, it kind of goes like a roller coaster up and down, but right now I'm in the up period where it's not bothering me nearly as much. Um, and that was not the case since before, like every day it was acting up and now it's not every day. And so we've been doing that. And then he also has been adjusting me chiropractic wise only when he needs to, and very specific treatments where I've gone to other chiropractors and it's like a blanket. We're just going to do all of this and you're good where his is very specific to what I'm feeling and how, like I went in two weeks ago with what was he diagnosed as carpal tunnel in my wrist. And he did specific treatments to just that. Um, and it was gone the next day. And so <laughs> he will do that. And then also the physical therapy side of, um, trying to rebuild my muscles. That's what we were working on. And then I got COVID in December and that has been kind of on the back plate, but, or back burner, but that was what we were working on. It's just certain exercises to try and rebuild my muscle and strengthen my muscles so that I don't get as fatigued as quickly. So Grace, I just want to make another observation. You are recovering from Lyme disease. You get COVID in December, which in many Lyme patients, it cripples them and brings them back to, you know, negative 20, right? It makes them worse than they were at their worst. And yet here you are today. I mean, 
hours into a podcast and doing so much better, which I think, again, is proof positive that you're doing things right, right? I mean, that's got to be more validation than anything for you. No, def- it, it definitely is. And it's definitely, it, it, it's really nice just to be able to do things again and feel like I am that 21-year-old who can do normal 21-year-old things again. You know, I definitely, I still proceed with caution. I still, um, you know, if I, I know that if I'm driving for extended hours that I'm going to be hurting or if I, you know, am running that that's going to hurt. Maybe I shouldn't do that. And I don't listen to myself very often, but I'm at a point where I am able to say yes to more and able to go out and do things and start planning things for the future and exciting things. And so, yeah, it definitely, it is exciting. So I'm going to ask you this really annoying and weird question that I like to ask before Rich picks up again is if you were in the grocery store and sparked up a conversation with somebody and they told you that they were just diagnosed with late stage Lyme disease and they were suffering greatly, what advice would you give them based on your own experiences and trial and error and learning experience you had to go through to get to where you are today? Um, I really would encourage them to look into the vital plan because I do feel like that was my turning point and it can't hurt to try. And it's also one of the lesser expensive things out there to try to do. Um, Other than that, take the rest you need to take. Uh, Even though it's really hard, like watch the TV show you wanna watch. Um, Just like allow your body to rest because it is what it needs. And also, I would join some of the Facebook groups out there just because they'll, they, all the people on there all understand what you're going through. And so if you have a question or you need help with something, you can reach out on there and people will answer you. Um, I know I've done that several times and they all come back with answers and it's very validating, especially if something is kind of like, I was having this weird itching after COVID and I didn't know if it was COVID or if it was Lyme because they are very similar. And we put it on the question, like we put a question on the group and they all answered, yep, it's normal. And that just makes you feel a sense of peace about everything. And so you're just having a community to kind of support you because sometimes your friends and family won't. Um, And just even just trying to explain to people because people won't understand it. People will give you those weird looks and they'll say, oh, but you're fine. Oh, you can do these things and just try to explain, oh, no, you can't. (laughs) And understanding that at this time, you just have to focus on you and saying no is okay. (laughs) So Jessica, this has really been a really enjoyable, um, you know, sort of uh, tennis match between uh, Grace and Matt, where they're really, I think, just beautifully, you know, sharing, uh, you know, an experience together. And I'm sure as the proud mom, you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, but I, I really like to get your sense of how, you know, your family came to, uh, you know, the vital plan and the restore kit um, and, and, and what your experience was with uh, the restore kit and how you started using it. Sure. Yeah. Um, when she came to me and said, mom, I need a break. I want to hit the pause button, reset my body. Will you help me figure this out? And she was the one who approached her friend about Plexus. And I totally hear you about the, the selling of some of these programs that are out there. But again, we had such a great relationship. Grace approached 
her friend and said, will you help me with this? And was never pressured to do anything or to buy anything. So she did it, found that it works. And the girl basically said, call me if you need me, or if you have questions, you won't hear from me. I won't pressure you. I'm out of the picture. So during that three month period, I started reading some books and I read Healing Lime um, by Stephen Buhner. And I read it and it made a lot of sense to me. And I thought, wow, I can, I can make a plan from this. So I had a notebook and I was taking all of these notes about what herbs he recommended in what dosage. And I went down, we have a great natural store in town. So I went down to the store with my list and they kind of looked at me like, Ugh, some of these are hard to get. And some of these are expensive and the dosage that they're requiring is going to be a problem. And so I thought, okay, maybe there's a better way. And I don't remember how I came to the book Unlocking Lime. It must, it might've been a search because they naturally link together. I've read Unlocking Lime and I thought, oh my goodness, here are all the same herbs, but in a protocol that I don't have to put together myself, I can purchase it. It's already dosed out for us. It's simple, it's affordable. And so like Grace said, there's no harm in trying. It's not a pharmaceutical that you're gonna worry about certain complications. So we'll try it, see how it works. So we phased her into it. And like she's mentioned, she had a really positive response to it for the first time. We felt like her body was saying, yes, I like this, this works for me. And so she's been on it ever since in December, my whole family, the four of us came down with COVID and it was more the traditional COVID experience. It wasn't the, the variant that's, you know, milder. This was, this was true. We were sick and I wanted to get better. And it was a little bit more intense than I had thought it would have been. So I looked at all of her supplements and I thought, these are all things that are meant to boost the immune system. So why wouldn't I apply that to what I'm going through right now and make my immune system as strong as it possibly can be? So I called Vital Plan and I've heard amazing things about their customer service. And so I called and I spoke to someone in person and I said, what are you recommending? I think it makes sense, but I just want to know, are you recommending this product for COVID recovery? And they said, absolutely. And I put our whole family on it. So all of us, I phased us all in a little bit faster than I phased Grace in. We're all still taking it. We've all been taking it for six weeks now. And I definitely, definitely credit it with getting us over that last bit of recovery and keeping us strong. And I said, well, we're definitely staying on it for the duration of this winter until we're back outside and we're moving around and we're getting vitamin D and we're back out in nature, but we're all on it for the next six months so that we can just keep our immune system optimal. So I'll share with you, I'm on it forever. I will be on it forever. Um, mm -hmm. I actually, I, I was first introduced to it um, a couple of years ago when I was bitten by a tick and I, I treated with a, um, I treated with a, uh, an LLMD from Chicago, Casey Kelly, and we decided that I would, I would start, uh, with the, uh, restore kit, uh, prophylactically to, to protect me from the tick bite. I, I wasn't personally interested in going on antibiotics. Again, I had been on antibiotics the year before and I didn't want to go on antibiotics. And by the way, for our listeners, 
I am pro-antibiotic. I just didn't think that that was going to be best for me at that time. Uh, and I actually didn't have a particularly good experience. Dr. Kelly uh, warned me that I might Herx. Um, and I didn't, I was three weeks into, uh, into the full, uh, full uh, plan. And, um, and then she was going to have me on a nine month, um, she was going to have me on a nine month protocol where I was, going to, I was going to be taking only one of the bottles for nine months. And when I herxed, I didn't know what it was and I felt badly. And I ended up throwing the restore kit out because I, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't realize I was herxing and I didn't realize what it, what it meant. And, uh, and then when I realized that I was herxing, I couldn't get out of the garbage because the garbage man already came and took it away. Oh. So, so, so then, so then so I went, I went through the, I went through the next year just on the, on the single bottle. Uh, and then I, I was bitten by a tick again. Uh, and, uh, and this time I decided I was going to do a, um, I was going to do a consult with Dr. Rawls himself. Uh, and I was able to get in for a consult with Dr. Rawls and he was, he's just a brilliant man. And we had a, we, we actually looked at all the supplements I had been taking for, you know, for a long time. Uh, we looked at a number of different, uh, um, you know, um, things that we, I wanted to do with my health. Um, and then we just sort of outlined a good a better and a best plan for me. And as it turns out, being on 50% of the restore kit uh, was, was going to be the best option for me. So I actually take half of it and I've been on half of it well over a year now. And I can't tell you how much better I feel in addition to some of the other things that I'm doing. So uh, I'd I, I actually recommend to you uh, that you think about just being on it, uh, you know, maybe forever, maybe not the full dose, uh, but mm -hmm. maybe the half dose, which is what I'm on. Um, so, uh, Talk about what other things that your your daughter is doing in addition to the re restore kit, because I know there are some other some other tools that she's using. I wonder whether you're using uh, Corella and your or or CBD oil or any of those other things that your daughter your daughter's been using. I'm actually not. No, I just do the restore kit, and that's all I'm taking right now. So, um, so Grace, I, I understand that you're you're taking you're taking Corella, and you're also. You're also um, using CBD oil. So talk about whether whether or not those tools are helpful to you and what role you think they're playing in your um, restoration of your health. So I was taking CBD oil, but it didn't do anything. <laughs> and so I might go back on it just for the inflammation aspect, but not to expect like any pain to be better. Um, but yeah, I tried the topical cream and I think I got it from Young Living and it just, it, it didn't really do anything. And so I gave it to my grandmother and she loves it. And so it just, it shows you how different things react for different people. But I have done the, um, the tincture. And so I might go back on that. The Corella, which is that? You were on that, but not, no longer. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now one of the things I'd recommend that you think about doing is, is maybe trying different brands of CBD. Um, I, I had actually tried several different bands that, and I was, I was using it for two purposes. One, I, I, it would, it was helping me sleep. Uh, so that, you know, there were different types of CBD and different brands of CBD. So you want to think about, um, you know, you want a full spectrum or you want some other. And, uh, we recently interviewed a young one, um, who, uh, started a company, uh, somebody who has Lyme disease named Ergo Hemco. Uh, and she actually has uh, a CBD, which is awesome. It is fantastic, and and uh, and she also has uh, you know a rub, and and Matt had given me several different like we, we get a lot of samples from different companies that are sending us stuff. That's one of the cool things I guess about having a podcast. And none of them ever worked for me until Ergo Hempka. Uh, I bought uh, I bought the the rub from from her. It's 
off the hook how good it is. Now, I'm old enough, Riddick, so, you know, if it works for me, I think it may be something you, want, you may want to think about. So uh, we can give you we can give you the, the contact information from that young woman. And, and again, something that's designed by somebody who has Lyme disease and she's used it as her way out of, you know, the suffering on this journey. I think we have to give a little bit more credibility to it. And I can, again, just tell you from, you know, the experience that Matt and I have had, we've tried all kinds of CBD and we've sampled all kinds of CBD. That is by far the best. So I think, I think you you may want to just um, reconsider uh, you know the CBD element of your journey because it really is a great tool, especially if you want uh, you want some assistance with uh, with sleeping and pain control. And Matt Matt had actually used it when he was back on um, you know Matt, Matt had been reinfected and and he actually used the CBD um, as a vehicle for helping him with his nausea when he was taking uh, antibiotics and it was really helpful for him as well. So you know it, 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 we find it to be a fantastic tool. So again, I'll, I'll just pass it on to you. So. Jessica, let's talk about the transformation, right? I mean, um, you know, I, I can tell you that I've been transformed by this experience, meaning uh, we, we recently did a series of videos uh, for one of the testing companies, actually, Agenix. Uh, Matt and I were asked to do some videos. And one of the things that came to me is that like every part of my life is different because I've learned so much from so many of our guests. And little by little, I was like working them into my life. Like I, I often call myself, uh, you know, Matt's minor bird, because when Matt would be anxious about trying something, he would say, hey, Rich, why don't you try it? You're healthy. And I was like, all right, I'll try it. And, you know, and, and I have all these little things that have sort of added into my life. So talk to me how about this has been transformational, not just for, for, uh, for Grace, but how has it been transformational for you and the rest of your family? I know for myself, it's taught me a lot about being intentional with your life and your health and taking a hard look at what we're eating, how we're eating, um, what our habits are, what we enjoy doing. I mean, how we spend time together, what we can do and what we can't do and saying yes to what we want to say yes to and no to what we don't want to say yes to. That it's really made me reflect on how I want to live and, and what I want to have in my life as I live, like, what does our best life look like? Because when you have chronic illness enter your, your family or into your life, it, it realigns everything in a different way. And so I think for myself, it's definitely realigned everything in my life. And I think for my family, you know, it's kind of, it's done the same. It's made us appreciate things differently. Um, some of the things that we used to do, we don't do anymore. Um, and there's no guilt or shame around that. Like we've just decided to do things that Grace could do. We've adapted certain things to what she can do. And we've rediscovered and discovered in some cases is new things, like new things that we enjoy doing. It, whether it's just a road trip around Connecticut, you know, let's get in the car and go for a drive and discover something. We found a lot of joy in that, that we don't have to do things on a big grand scale, that there's a lot of beauty to be found in watching a movie together as a family with an overflowing bowl of popcorn. Like that's a beautiful way to spend time together. So it's, yeah, I think intentionality has really been the big thing that's come out of it for me. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, but sort of as a predicate to the intentionality is appreciation, right? There are a lot of mm -hmm. things you took for granted before that yeah. you don't take for granted. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I shared with the, the folks on, a, on the hygienics videos we did is I took my immune system for granted. It just worked, right? I, it just worked. I could go out and drink as much as I wanted. I could eat whatever I want. I could exercise or not exercise. I could do whatever I wanted to do, stay up late, not stay up late, right? And, and I just took my immune system for granted because it just worked, right? Now I don't. 
I don't take it for granted. It's something that I that I I really appreciate. And I also I also believe that I have the responsibility of making sure that I'm intentional. I love that word that you used, intentional about everything that I do so that I'm not only appreciating my immune system, but helping my immune system to keep me healthy. Because mm -hmm. I've now seen in so many people and with so many, you know, with so much suffering, what happens when your immune system doesn't work anymore and when it fails. So it's a beautiful system and it works really well, but we also should be taking some responsibility for helping that system work, right? And be intentional about all the things we do, whether it be what we're eating, what time we go to sleep, how we wake up, what we do when we wake up and all of the different other tools we have available to us to aid our immune system, for example. So I really think that is that is really awesome. Now, talk to us about how your family's been transformed as well. I mean, there's just you know a piece of this, and Matt talked about that in the foreshadowing part of his uh, you know his questions to uh, your beautiful daughter. Talk to us about how how it, this has been transformational for your family and how your family is now giving back. And what was the trigger for that give back that uh, you're now doing? You know, it's a really interesting story how this came to be because I never would have imagined that this is where I would be here talking to you through this, helping other people through this. When we met with um, the Lyme doctor, they suggested sauna treatments. That was the very first thing that they said, if you have access to a sauna, use it. And so we found a practice, like I said, close by that we were able to use their sauna. And even though it didn't make her feel good, I really strongly believed that this is, if this is the primary thing the doctor said to do, we'll, we'll do it and maybe it will get better. So a friend of mine, her father was closing his medical practice and had a sauna and she was going to make it available to us for a really reasonable price. So Greg and I drove down to Pennsylvania, picked the sauna up, drove it back, set it up in our family room. <laughs> and it wasn't a zip up one. It was a big sauna and she tried it. And didn't like it. I tried it and I'm not going to lie. I didn't really like it. And it sat there and I thought, okay, I'll open it up for other people. So I put everything on my email list, on my Facebook page. I have the sauna. If you want to use it, come over. No one came over. And then I realized we should probably dump the sauna. So I put it on Facebook marketplace and it sat and it just sat and sat and sat. So while it was sitting out there in marketplace land, I'm on the parents with kids with Lyme Facebook group and a mom put on there a question of how do you go about renting a wheelchair for your child? And that summer when Grace was at her sickest, we wanted to go to Lake Compounds and it was a very hot day and Lake Compounds is not a huge Six Flags amusement park, but it was much more than she could handle walking. So I went to our surgical pharmacy in town and I rented her a wheelchair for the day and they were amazing. They gave it to us for the whole weekend for the price of one day. So we had it. And then I was able to get a used wheelchair off of somebody else on marketplace. But Grace was very resistant to using that as an accommodation in her life. So I had a wheelchair. And so I said to this mom, gosh, I really wish you were local. I'd give you mine. We're not using it. And this parents group is a international Facebook group. There's thousands of people on it. And she said, well, where are you located? I said, I'm in Connecticut. She said, no way. So am I. I said, well, that's not a coincidence. So we met up at a coffee shop and I met her daughter who was newly diagnosed, having a lot of balance issues with her diagnosis. I gave her 
the wheelchair and we were talking about how there needs to be the next step that we have these communities on Facebook and they're so wonderful and supportive, but we need something locally. We need parents to connect with each other. And we were talking as parents to partner with each other. So if you have something that you're not using and they need it, we can share. So that's where the idea of having a partnership was born. At the same time, Greg, my husband was in between jobs and there was supposed to be a seamless transition of insurance benefits. But because of a clerical error, that didn't happen. But I didn't know that. So I went to pick up her medication at the pharmacy, the same pharmacy that rented us the wheelchair. And they said, I'm sorry, but there's a problem. It's not going through. I said, what do you mean it's not going through? And they said, well, you don't have insurance coverage. So immediately I panicked. But my default was, well, how much is it out of pocket? Maybe I'll just pay for it. And they said, well, it's almost $1,000. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I can't just pay for that. So I went out to the car. Um, yes, I went out to the car and I called Greg and I had a little meltdown. And I said, I need to get my kid her medication, but I don't have a thousand dollars. So what am I going to do? So I went back inside and he, the pharmacist said, I'll give you two or three days that you can pay for out of pocket. That'll give you enough time to fix the insurance issue and it'll all be okay. And so that's what we did. And that was the seed that planted $1,000 in my head. So I have partners and $1,000. And I said, okay, God, if you want me to do something with this, you have to show me what to do because I don't have a background in nonprofits. I don't know other than partners, $1,000, what to do with that. So I come home and about two days later, I get a ding on Facebook, someone inquiring about the sauna. So it turns out this person wanted to come over and look at it. They're in my neighborhood. And they said, if we like it, will you take a thousand dollars? And I said, yes, I will. So they came and they liked the sauna. They took the sauna. They gave me a thousand dollars. And I said, okay, nonprofit partner in Lyme. We're going to give a thousand dollars to people. So I said, I don't know how to do this. So I said, okay, God, show me who you want me to talk to. And through a connection, I was put in touch with a tax advisor who just so happened to be doing a nonprofit for another client. And he said, I'll tag you on to that client and it really won't be too overwhelming of a process. And I said, well, that's great. But, you know, my husband just changed jobs. I have a lot of costs medically with my daughter and I don't even know what starting a nonprofit costs. How much do you think you can do this for? And he said, well, I'll do it for a thousand dollars. And I said, okay, I have a thousand dollars. He met with me that Saturday within two weeks, partner in Lyme was conceived and was created and we hit the ground running and nothing has been the same since. That is really, really an awesome story. And of course we know there are no coincidences. Wait, 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 but... say, that, say that again, because I talked over you and it's going to be hard to edit that. So if you could just start again. <laughs> Shot. So that is really a cool and beautiful story and a, and a number of different events come coming together, which we know as Christians, there are no coincidences. It's all happening the way it's supposed to happen and the way it did happen. And, and, it, and it's just so beautiful that you and your daughter developed a partnership together. It's one of the things you were talking about earlier. And that partnership has now become something that's so much larger where you're creating larger partners and larger partnerships out of the partnership that began in your beautiful family. 
So talk about all the things you've been able to do with this really cool not-for-profit you get set up. We give $1,000 to residents of Connecticut who are either in treatment or have a family member, a dependent family member in treatment for tick-borne disease. And what we do that's a little bit different than some other um, nonprofits and foundations is we let them spend the money on whatever they want to, as long as it falls under the umbrella of health and wellness. So if it's helping you heal in body and mind and spirit, go ahead and buy it. And so we've had people pay for doctors, um, pay for specialized blood work, buy themselves saunas that help them um, do essential oils, the vital plan, um, just a whole host of different options, holistically and pharmaceutically, whatever they need to invest in. Because as you and I know, when you're all of your money is going towards the treatment of this disease, there's not a lot left over for the extra things that you'd really like to try because you're uncertain if they may work, you might hold off on PEMF treatments, or you might hold off on um, investing in an amp coil or, or some of these other treatments that you've heard are so successful for people because you just don't have that money. So this has allowed people to try new treatments, new modalities, visit doctors, um, travel for treatment that they may not have been able to do otherwise. So we know that it's not going to comprehensively treat Lyme. It's not enough money to do that, but it is enough money to say, Hey, we care about you. We want you to have this go spend it on something that you've been really wishing for and wanting, but haven't been able to do. So, so if, if folks in our community would like to support your organization, how would they get in touch with you and how could they support you? No, absolutely. Our website is partnerinlime.org. I can be reached at info at partnerinlime.org. And I have talked to people throughout the country, even though we're geographically centered in Connecticut, I have spoke with people from many different states, helping connect them with communities near them, helping them get hooked up with doctors in their area, and even referring them to other nonprofits that can give them funding. Um, we have provided limited tick testing reimbursement for people that are outside of Connecticut. So if, if it's a hardship to send your tick out for testing, we want to cover that for you because we know that, like I said earlier, information's power. And if you know what that tick has or doesn't have, then you know how to treat it. Or you can have the relief that comes knowing that you dodged a bullet on that one, that tick is not going to harm you. So we offer that. Um, I have a Facebook-based meetup on Thursday nights with other moms of kids with Lyme so that we have a place to talk about what parenting looks like when Lyme is in your life. So there's a lot of different things we do in addition to offering financial support for people. And we welcome, you know, any donations, um, monetary donations. We also seek donations of artwork. We just had our big fundraiser for the year. Art with Heart was last weekend. And that really launches our year and pays for a lot of our funding and our programming. So if you're an artist and you want to support us through donations of your work, we welcome that as well. So we have one more request of each of you, and we're going to look for the two of you to help us with this together. Um, and it's the question we ask at the end of every Tick Boot Camp podcast. If God forbid, and I'm going to ask it to you this way, Jess, um, uh, and Grace a little differently, if your dad or husband, who's been so wonderful in this story and was such a powerful force, although behind the scenes, certainly from this podcast, came in with a tick biting him right after this podcast, what would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? Immediately, I would get that tick tested. 
I would know if you were, I don't want to use the word fortunate enough to have the tick bite, but so many of us that have come into this never noticed the tick bite, never had a rash. So if you know that you've had exposure to it, if you either, if you have that tick, oh my goodness, save it, put it in a plastic bag, um, send it to one of the tick testing companies. Um, Thankfully, we've been able to afford everything so far in this journey. But if you're someone that can't, if that's a financial hardship, I will pay for you to have that tick tested until I run out of money in that fund. Um, because when you get that information back, then you know how to, to treat it. And I know that there's doctors in our area that are really not afraid to look at you as a whole patient and look at what your symptoms are and look at what your body responds to and treat you according to a plan that they customize with you. So having that knowledge, having the ability now to know who is capable and has really good outcomes with treating this disease, that fear, that uncertainty, that unknown would be removed. And I would be able to say, okay, we can, we can make a plan for this. We can move forward in this. You're not alone in this. There's hope in this. And for a family member, they would never have to go alone. They, you know, I, I think that we can't go through this alone. We have to have someone going with us, supporting us, encouraging us, reminding us that tomorrow's a new day and that there's, you know, mercy's new every morning. We wake up and the sun is there and we have to find the encouragement to keep pushing on until we find what works for us and we find the the healing in this journey because it's it's waiting for us. But sometimes we need someone to remind us to keep moving forward. So Grace and Jessica, uh, we want to, we want to uh, please um, ask you to consider us at Tick Bootcamp new partners of yours in line. And we want to thank you for being such beautiful people and, and offering so much wonderful, um, you know, support and assistance to the people in our community. So again, thank you so much for joining Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you thank so you much for having us. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guests, Grace and Jessica Schneider. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Grace and Jessica, please visit them on Instagram at partnerinlime or visit their website at partnerinlime.org. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note, we appreciate any input or improvements you'd like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, social media, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you, as always, for listening.